You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at WGU.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Simons. If you recognize that voice, it's because he's a previous guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We talked about his book then that was about the five most important, or uh, let me say it a different way, five naval battles that shaped American history. The book is called Decision at Sea. I read it. It's wonderful. I subsequently have read two of his books. One is called Neptune, the Allied Invasion of Europe and the D-Day Landings. This this book will make you wonder how the hell we pulled it off or you know, the Allies pulled it off, the logistical mountain is Everett-esque. But Craig and I are going to talk today about his latest book. It's superb. You will learn so much about not just the man, but the leadership dynamics and strategy of the Pacific War. And the book is titled Nimitz at War, Command Leadership from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay. And I will just tell you that the reviews for this are unsurprisingly fabulous. Wall Street Journal called it one of the best modern war biographies, and it sets a high bar for scholars of the Pacific War's great operational captains. 
Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate being asked to come back. It's quite a compliment. Well, the compliment and the joy is all ours, not in just reading your works, but getting this opportunity to talk to you about them um, as an as a proud Army veteran. These Navy books are kind of like, you know, did they really do anything during the war? Did they contribute at all? But in your case, the book says, yes, it did. And in so many ways, it was the clear headed. But confident humble, but persistent quality of leadership, qualities of leadership demonstrated by Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz that helped the Americans win the war in the Pacific. What made and what makes Chester Nimitz attractive to you, compelling? Well, first of all, I appreciate all the encomiums about a Navy admiral from an army guy. So thank you for that. Um, (laughs) Well, he had five stars and I was an E4. So, you know, I. Yeah, pretty close, pretty close. (laughs) Um, I think that one of the key elements of any uh, person endowed with a great responsibility, particularly in life or death situations, as of course any admiral or general is in time of war. Is I mean, they're all the things people know about uh, courage, responsibility, hard work, intelligence, and so on. But the key element, I believe, is temperament. It, it's a rare thing, and it's hard to define with much specificity, but it's the ability not only to remain calm while others are losing their minds, the ability to choose which confrontations are worth contesting and which are probably worth saving until later, Uh, the ability to listen as much as it is to talk. Uh, That particular temperament we don't necessarily associate with military leadership. We think drawing your sword, charging like the light brigade Mm -hmm. or picket's charge or whatever, that's the essence of leadership. And that kind of leadership is certainly necessary in war. But to manage a war of the extent of the war in the Pacific from 1942 to 1945 requires a great deal more than that. And uh, Chester Nimitz turned out to be exactly the right guy in exactly the right place at the right time. Your book focuses on his World War II leadership. But please tell the Leaders and Legends audience just for a few minutes How did Chester Nimitz start his career? And perhaps more important, how did he get selected by Franklin Roosevelt over so many senior admirals? As a matter of fact, am I remembering correctly? He never wore three stars. He went from two stars as a rear admiral to then a full admiral when he took over at Pearl Harbor. Is that right? That is right. Um, But the reason I'm going to go back and answer your first question in a minute, but let me answer that question initially. And that is to say that being commander of the Pacific Fleet is a job that carries with it a four-star rank. So in other words, anybody who occupied that job would wear four stars. Uh, Admiral Kimmel, uh, for example, who wore two stars before being appointed, was that made a four-star admiral, full admiral, uh, to take that job. And when he left that job, he automatically reverted to two stars. That, I think, sorry, I got a phone call. That, um, 
that affects the discussion, which still continues uh, among students of the Second World War about the extent to which he should have his four-star rank restored. Uh, he never really held four stars except as commander of the Pacific Fleet. And the same thing applied to Chester Nimitz. He was a two-star as head of the Bureau of Navigation, which was the name of the Bureau of Personnel, I guess because they navigated personnel. But in any case, he was a two-star in that job and took put on four stars um, when he took over command of the Pacific Fleet. The assumption was that when he rotated out of that job, he would go back to two stars. Instead, of course, Congress gave him five stars. But let's back up and find out how he got there in the first place. Nimitz was a Texan. He grew up in the hill country of uh, north central Texas, a little town called Fredericksburg in Kersville, uh, where he had been born. Um, and he never thought really about going into the Navy. That was not on his radar. In fact, there wasn't any radar in those days, <laughs> but he wasn't really considering such a thing until he went to a county fair and he saw an artillery team doing an artillery demonstration at the county fair, and they were West Pointers wearing a West Point uniform, and boy, did they look sharp. And he said, wow, you got where? how do I get in on this? And they said, well, you have to go get an appointment to West Point. Turns out all the West Point appointments were filled. So this congressman asked him, what about this place called Annapolis? You want to go there? So in a way, Robert, he, he started out falling in love with the Army. That should make you feel good. <laughs> and ended up having to go to the Navy. Uh, he went at age 17 to the Naval Academy, graduated with his class, the top fourth, but not at the top of the stack. Uh, and did submarine service for many years. So he worked his way through the Navy, uh, job by job, rank by rank, until he ended up the head of the Bureau of Navigation in 1940, which is where he was when uh, Roosevelt plucked him for command of the Pacific. Why did Roosevelt pluck him? Well, first of all, Roosevelt knew him. You know, Roosevelt always thought of himself as a Navy man. He uh, he learned to sail a boat before he could walk. Practically, he would he had been assistant secretary of the Navy un, uh, under Wilson in the First World War, and uh, like his sixth cousin and uncle by marriage, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, always aspired to uh, uh, that job as assistant secretary of the Navy, and then springboarded as his distant relative did into the governorship of New York. Uh, but Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, made it his business to know what was going on in the Navy. He, a story that I particularly like, well, there's two that I'll tell. One is that he was brought a list of the possible promotions from captain to rear admiral at one point, and he ran his finger down the list and then stopped and said, hey, wait a minute, I don't even know this guy. So first of all, the assumption that he would know every single captain mm. whose name was put forward for promotion to flag rank is an interesting thing. I doubt any other president could have done that. The other story that I particularly like that says something about him as a Navy man is that George Marshall, who was the Army Chief of Staff in the Second World War, uh, once said, supposedly, it's hard to track down the origin of this quotation, but supposedly said to an acquaintance, he said, you know, I don't mind that he favors the Navy over the Army. I guess I expected that. But it does bother me when he refers to the Navy as us and the Army as them. 
So that tells you a lot about Franklin Roosevelt's attitude toward the Navy. And Chester Nimitz was right there in Washington as head of the Bureau of Navigation. They spoke not every day, but frequently. When Roosevelt would call the house, he would ask for Chester. So they were close enough that Roosevelt knew who he was, understood his temperament, and in fact wanted to appoint him to command of the Pacific Fleet a year earlier. And Nimitz had turned it down with the argument that he was really too junior at that moment to take the job and too many senior admirals would resent it. So instead of Nimitz, it was Kimmel who was in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. The situation into which Nimitz assumed, walked, assumes command in December of 41 after Pearl Harbor and you can take this opportunity to indict or acquit husband E. Kimmel, if you like, for his role in his or lack thereof in the Pearl Harbor disaster. But please explain to the podcast audience what exactly Nimitz inherited at the end of 41. Okay, great question. Two questions, really. I'll start with the, the first. Um, not guilty. Uh, not guilty because uh, I think Kimmel did as much as any reasonable person probably would have done under those circumstances, but he did have to resign, and he knew that. There's a tradition in the Navy, still exists, that if you're sound asleep in your cabin and your officer of the deck up on the bridge runs your ship aground, that's on you. And Kimmel knew that and understood it. He resigned his position, knowing that after such a disaster, he could not stay there. But he fully expected that a subsequent court-martial would find him not personally responsible for what happened. He never got the court-martial. Instead, the assumption has always been that he was derelict in his job. And that's why his family and other defenders have tried hard over the years to resuscitate his reputation. When Nimitz himself arrived, he invited Kimmel to dinner at his house the first night and told him, it's not your fault. It could have happened to anybody. And that's probably true. So while I say not guilty, in terms of Navy justice, he had to resign anyway. So he's responsible, even if he's not guilty. Did Kimmel and uh, Nimitz know each other before they met at Pearl Harbor? Forgive they me for all knew that. each other. You know, the Navy's a small community before World War II. It became an enormous community, of course, during the war and remains fairly large today. Uh, but yes, all senior officers knew each other personally. And most of them used their academy nicknames to talk to one another, you know, Stinky or whatever it might be. Betty. Uh, Betty, for example, <laughs> for Harold Stark, who was known universally as Betty Stark. Yeah. So, yes, they knew each other. Of course they did. And what exactly did, did Admiral Nimitz inherit when he took command? Yeah, your second question. Um, he arrived on New Year's Eve, uh, excuse me, Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th, 1941. So only a few weeks afterward, the, the place was still a shamble, still smoking a little bit, oil visible on the surface of Pearl Harbor. Um, and most of, and he arrived by himself. This is important because every admiral, every senior officer at every level is dependent heavily on his staff. And Nimitz arrived there without a staff, without even an aide, arrived by himself 
walked into a room with all of Kimmel's staff members, his chief of staff, his head of intelligence, all of those people were Kimmel's people. And they pretty much expected that they were going to be sent packing. I mean, after all, they were at least as uh, guilty, if that's the right word, as their boss had been. Um, so they expected to be chewed out and, and sent home. Instead, Nimitz came in and said, I'm the new guy here. You got to help me out. We're going to we're going to win this thing. Uh, but I need your support. I mean, oh, my gosh, it was they practically teared up. Um, so, again, that goes back to the idea of uh, Nimitz's ability to read the room, to gauge the feeling of those he dealt with, the temperament that he had in dealing with officers, both junior officers, senior officers, and peer officers. So he inherited a pretty desperate situation. In addition, Nimitz was fully aware that the great strategic plan of the Allies at that time was to defeat Germany first, so that 85% of all the resources coming off the building ways just then beginning to gear up for the war, 85% of that will go to Europe, in theory, at least, and 15% to the Pacific, where they were to hold on the defensive until after Germany was defeated. So here's a smoking fleet in the harbor and no prospect of getting very much in the terms of reinforcements anytime soon. So it's, it's a pretty desperate environment. One of the things that stood out in your book is what you just described, and that is it seems, and I'm going to say this in a way that, that you're going to correct, but I'm I'm fine with it, that Nimitz didn't have four stars or five stars. He didn't have those until he was compelled to have them. In other words, look, I'm the boss, but let's all figure this out together. But if you have to make me act like the boss, I will. Oh, yeah. It's not that he uh, he ever tried to pass off responsibility onto his staff or to anybody else. Uh, when a hard call had to be made, he made it. And and sometimes stunningly, I mean, the examples are replete, his decision to take up the hurled gauntlet in the Coral Sea at Midway and elsewhere. Uh, those were bold decisions. In fact, decisions that many of his staff members argued against. And he simply said, well, this is the way it's got to be. Um, so it was not that he was uh, so easygoing that he wouldn't uh, take the bit in his teeth when circumstances suggested that he should. He was perfectly willing to do that. So temperament doesn't necessarily mean you just get along and go along. Temperament means you can judge and gauge the strength and commitment of the people around you. Uh, he had a device, a mental device, if you would, called calculated risk. And it was not actually a calculation. There's no way you could punch in numbers and come mm. up with a decision. Uh, it simply meant that he could imagine the, the uh, importance of a particular objective and apply the necessary strength to accomplish that objective. Now, the question, of course, is, does the objective exceed the value of the cost that it's going to require to take that objective. And, and it was something that he worked out in his mind and, and applied not only to military circumstances, but to personnel issues as well. I guess I should have phrased it as he didn't necessarily think that he had all the answers, but he absolutely was the person who got to answer whatever question was posed or in front of them. Yeah, I suppose that's a version of uh, 
Harry Truman's famous, the buck stops here sign that he kept on his desk. I think that's true. Uh, he wanted to gather all the information he possibly could. He always required his staff to prepare situational reports. He read them very carefully. He annotated them in the margin. He asked questions about them when necessary. But once all the information was in hand, then he was the guy who made the decision. You mentioned a few minutes ago about the uh, ratio, which comes up in, in basically all these World War II books, including uh, several that I've read this year. This the, Germany needs to be defeated first. The ratio, as you put it, was 85 to 15, stand on the defensive in the Pacific. But the Navy didn't really do that. And no, <laughs> Nimitz didn't seem to be a fan of that. And it's understandable considering, you know, that the Army necessarily didn't had no equivalent of Pearl Harbor. So, you know, they didn't, the Navy had its, has its pride and its fighting spirit. Um, why didn't we stand on the defensive as the original plan dictated? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, and it it's bothersome to me that at certain levels in studying the Second World War, um, some of the textbooks in particular take that Germany first principle, literally, there'll be a chapter on the war in Europe as if it happened by itself and then a separate chapter as if it happened afterward on the war in the Pacific. But in fact, as you point out, these wars were both fought at exactly the same time. And that meant that they were both competitors for the logistical support material necessary to conduct those wars. Uh, and you ask, why, why didn't the United States or the Allies more generally? Uh, and one reason was because it was necessary to keep the Japanese from completely consolidating the maritime empire that they conquered in the first six months of 1942. If you give them the time to consolidate all that material, taking it back is going to cost a lot more. But in addition to that, and probably even more important than that, was Admiral Ernest J. King. Ernie King, Chief of Naval Operations and Comments, that is, he's both the operational and administrative head of the United States Navy, in World War II, was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Combined Chiefs of Staff, and King relentlessly pushed for increased appropriations for the Pacific. He got the 85-15 change to 65-35. He, he just pushed and pushed and pushed, and the British became very annoyed about this. Who is this guy, King? He always wants to go after the Japanese. So, King's insistence that you couldn't simply let the Japanese consolidate all that material that they had conquered, you had to go after them at least to keep them off balance. Um, so those are the two reasons why the Germany first strategy was honored mostly with language rather than reality. It would be remiss of me at this time not to, and I didn't look his name up, but to recommend a book called The Admirals. And I think the author's name is Walter Bornman. That is correct. Yeah. Very it good is book. a wonderful, wonderful book, not only illuminating the personalities, the tactics and the strategy, but also the, the, the big P political fight that happened among the services. Uh, to your point, more than once, even George Marshall says, we can go fight the Japanese when the British were saying, let's do this and let's do that. And the Americans and the Brits could never, you know, very rarely agreed on on what to do next or what should be priorities. How much was the Pacific on the mind, not only of the commanders, but also 
among the American people who had never had an attack like this on their own soil, you know, except for the Civil War and then the burning of the White House. But the American people seem to be the ones who are saying, look, the, I won't say the pejorative, but the Japanese attacked us. So let's go get them. Absolutely. The popular opinion was defeat Japan. That was the most important thing there. American public, which had been so isolationist just even 12 months before, I mean, just prior to the outbreak of the Second World War for the United States, that is in December of 41, uh, the vast majority of the American population wanted nothing to do with this war in Europe. So the idea of Germany first uh, didn't really sit well with them. As far as they were concerned, Japan was the enemy. Let's go get them. Now, the British, of course, had been fighting this war for two years by themselves without with very little help from the United States. Lend-lease was crucial, no doubt about it. The United States fought an undeclared naval war against the German U-boats in the North Atlantic even before Pearl Harbor. Um, but for the American public, the real war was in the Pacific. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, but also, uh, where was I going with this? I think I was going to talk about King again. What was the rest of your question? Well, the point is, is that the the question basically, besides what you just answered is, is there was a political war among the top brass. Germany was this, the Germany first, and you correct me, please. The Germany first strategy was based on the fact that Germany was seen as a much more powerful country, a bigger threat per se than the Japanese. But that didn't stop the influence of the British in their combined chiefs of staff for most of the materials going to Europe. And yet you had an American people who were just a hell of a lot more ticked off at the Japanese than the Germans. How did these top commanders, how did they work this out and balance it so we could be aggressive in each theater? Well, the Anglo-American feuding over how to dispose of the resources available and what should come first, it is a, a through story of the whole Second World War. I mean, first of all, the Anglo-American alliance is the closest allied alliance probably in the history of warfare. They shared the common language, more or less, uh, <laughs> and they certainly shared a common enemy, but they disagreed, sometimes vehemently, about where to apply those resources. Because the British had been at war by themselves for two years, they felt it was time to finish the job in Europe. That's where the greatest threat was. The Germans had already conquered half of Europe. They were well on their way to the gates of Moscow. This was where we really had to put the effort. Their gross domestic product was three times that of Japan. Um, and there's frankly a little bit of racism involved here too, because you can say, oh, it's terrible that the Germans are occupying those wonderful Frenchmen and the Danes and the Norwegians. But the fact that Japan is occupying China, well, we can worry about that later. So, so that's a subtext here as well. But the feuding between the British on the one hand and the Americans on the other about where to put the emphasis was an absolute constant refrain in Allied conversations. Not only that, a little bit of racism, but was, wasn't there also the sense that the German, the Europeans, the white folks are just better fighters. They're they're better than the Japanese, and they're just not quite as as ferocious and as good as we are. So it'd be well, an easier task. <laughs> you had some of that certainly early in 1942. It did not take long 
<laughs> for the allies and particularly the Americans to realize, oops, we really kind of underestimated the uh, martial effectiveness of the Japanese, not just in attacking Pearl Harbor, which a lot of Americans put up to saying, oh, well, they're just sneaky. You know, they came in on a Sunday morning and they sucker punched us. That doesn't really count. But once the campaigns began in the South Pacific and then in the Central Pacific, there was a quick appreciation that Japanese martial efficiency was pretty darn good. So yes, that early racism that, oh, they're little short, squinty-eyed people with buck teeth, we can worry about them later, that went away pretty quickly. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is distinguished, celebrated historian and Tom Hanks's BFF, <laughs> Greg Simons. We are discussing his book, Nimitz at War. It is a wonderful, wonderful portrait of a very unassuming yet yet incredibly impactful man, Chester Nimitz. Six months after Nimitz gets, or let's say seven months after Nimitz arrives in Pearl Harbor, the Battle of Midway takes place early June 42. You've written a book on that battle. Uh, we just did a podcast recording about that specific battle, and it's certainly one of the, I think most people would say easily, top 10 battles in the history of the world, naval battles. Uh, I don't. Where would you put it, by the way? That's a. I put it in the top five. I think in terms of uh, being a, a turning point in history and the fact that it's one of the very few naval battles in history where the opposing fleet is all but annihilated, sinking all four Japanese aircraft carriers in a single day. Pretty remark, pretty remarkable. So Nimitz comes in. Midway happens about like you mentioned that his staff wasn't necessarily in favor of his boldness there, but they had broken the code. They had figured out that a, I think it's AF, AF for the Japanese meant Midway. Talk to us for a few minutes about Nimitz's role, and if Henry Fonda played it correctly in Midway in 1976, and what that battle did for Nimitz with regard to his personal preference when it came to strategy and tactics? I think what the Battle of Midway and the campaign leading up to the Battle of Midway reveals about Chester Nimitz is his willingness to take bold stands. We say that we broke the Japanese code, and that's mostly true, but I always like to add a cautionary note that when we say we broke the code, that doesn't mean we were reading their mail. It meant that out of 100 or 200 Japanese messages, one or two of them could be subjected to careful cryptanalysis. And out of that cryptanalysis, the code breakers might be able to pull one or two phrases, which they would combine with their understanding of the Japanese culture and mentality to make a reasonable guess at what was coming. So this is what Nimitz got when, when uh, Commander Rochefort uh, contacted his counterpart on Nimitz's staff, his intelligence officer, Eddie Layton, and said, I got a hot one here that the guy with the blue eyes will want to know about. It's not a smoking gun. It doesn't mean we know they're coming and where they're coming and when they're coming. That's kind of been exaggerated. They had a pretty good sense of what was likely to happen. And that's what led to this whole AF business. Uh, again, the popular literature has suggested that's how we found out that the Japanese were attacking Midway. No, 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 not true. The cryptanalysts were certain, and that's what they told Nimitz. But the folks in Washington were doubtful because 
the evidence was so skimpy. So to prove to the skeptics that Midway was mm -hmm. AF, they created this business of having Midway send out a radio message in the air saying that we are short of drinking water. That was intercepted by the Japanese who repeated it. That was intercepted by the code breakers and they had their smoking gun. AF is Midway, but they knew that already. The thing for Nimitz is what do you do about it? I mean, it's nice to know what the enemy's up to, but remember that in December, uh, well, not December, by now June, of 1942, Nimitz has really only two, let's say two and a half functioning aircraft carriers. He's got the Enterprise and the Hornet who are coming back from the Doolittle raid. So they're not even there yet. They're on their way back. He's got the Lexington, which is just sunk in the Coral Sea and the Yorktown, which is badly damaged. So if the Yorktown can get back and if it can be patched up and if Halsey brings the other two carriers back from the Doolittle raid and they can be reprovisioned and refueled in a hurry and those two and a half carriers can be sent out to Midway, then they're in a position to, to take on the four and possibly five, Rochefort wasn't really sure, Japanese carriers coming. You know, that's pretty risky. And what's at stake here? Remember the calculated risk that Nimitz would always run through his mind. What's the value of the objective? Midway Atoll, two tiny little islands in mid-Pacific. One of them had an airstrip. That's pretty useful. But they're 3,000 miles from Japan, even if the Japanese took it. They would have a terrible time trying to supply it and maintain it. The Americans could always take it back. So is it worth risking all of your crippled assets now to take on this superior force? It's hard to appreciate what a bold decision that was by Chester Nimitz. But he calculated that having advanced information about the Japanese intentions gave him such an edge. And remember, there is the airstrip on Midway. So that's three carriers and one airstrip, four platforms against four Japanese platforms. He liked the odds and he did it. To your point a few minutes ago about overrating or overemphasizing the intelligence break that the Americans earned, got. Does that or has that among historians detracted from the boldness of Nimitz's decision? In other words, well, anyone would have sent the carriers there because we knew exactly what was going to happen. That wasn't true. And it seems to have diminished the fact that Nimitz decided to roll the dice. I think that's absolutely right. I think it has diminished the extent to which Nimitz um, made this calculated decision. I think it, it, uh, takes away some of the credit of the commanders of the task groups and the pilots, for that matter, uh, in taking on the Japanese juggernaut. Uh, it's easy to say, oh, well, of course we won because we read their mail. No, we we thought we knew what they were up to, but we responded boldly and with, with great uh, efficiency and a certain amount of luck in winning that battle of Midway. And so, yeah, I think that is true. Uh, but you say he rolled the dice. I, I'm not sure that's a phrase I particularly care for because, again, I don't think Nimitz saw it as rolling the dice. 
He got all the information he could. He talked to everybody. He had Rochefort come over to the staff meeting where they discussed it and grilled him on exactly what he knew and what he didn't know and what he thought was likely and what he was uncertain about. And he talked personally with his task force commanders and told them very carefully, look, if it doesn't go well, if it it isn't working out, I want you to get the hell out of there. Turn east and just steam away because we can always get midway back. But if we can catch them on the hop, if we can ambush them from a place they don't expect, this gives us an opportunity to even the odds. So he he wasn't really rolling the dice. He was carefully calculating the odds and giving instructions appropriately. Because the point of the midway excursion from the Japanese or one of the one of the goals, if I remember correct, is they wanted that clash. They just didn't expect it when it happened. They wanted to lure the American fleet out and destroy the carriers, which they had not been able to do at Pearl Harbor. So the battle itself wasn't a surprise per se. It's just more when it happened. Well, and where it happened. I think Mm -hmm. you're right in saying the goal, the goal is not Midway Island, Midway crummy little coral atoll out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's nice to have. It's a good submarine refueling base. It's got an airstrip for an early warning system. Those are valuable assets. But in terms of its existential importance to victory in the war, it's pretty small. So it wasn't midway that the Japanese wanted. What they hoped was that it was valuable enough to convince the Americans to send out the carriers to try to defend it. And when they did, the Japanese would pounce on those carriers and send them to the bottom, which would give them unchallenged superiority in the Western Pacific for the next six to eight months. That's the goal. It's get the carriers. So they wanted the carriers to come out. But their assumption was this, that they would attack Midway. The Americans would go, oh, my goodness, Midway is under attack. Send out the carriers. The carriers would leave Pearl Harbor and head north. But instead, of course, Nimitz positioned them 300 miles north of Midway, the last place, literally, as it turned out, the Japanese would look for them. So it wasn't that the battle was a surprise. It was the fact that the attack, the threat came from the north and not from the south. And that is because of the code breakers. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is award-winning and brilliant, and I say that humbly to you, brilliant author and historian, Craig Simons. We are discussing his book, Nimitz at War. I wanted to ask you some questions about the folks around Nimitz, but I have to start, of course, with Indianapolis Public School and Short Ridge High School graduate here in Indianapolis, Raymond Spruance who took over the carriers from Halsey uh, for the Battle of Midway. I'm going to throw some names out there as you answer them, but please start with Spruance. What was their relationship like? How valuable was Admiral Spruance's 
advice and friendship to Admiral Nimitz? Well, first of all, they were almost peas in a pod. Uh, after Midway, uh, which is when they really became close, uh, Spruance became Nimitz's chief of staff. And was for 14 months, they lived in the same house. They ate breakfast together every day. They ate dinner together, together every night. They walked to work every morning, walked back from work every afternoon, exercised together. They used to go on these daunting, Herculean long hikes and swims in the ocean. They were thick as thieves. Now, that came after Midway. At Midway, when Halsey came back from the Doolittle Raid with the two fully functioning carriers that Nimitz had left, after the Battle of the Coral Sea, um, he was shocked to see Halsey come in covered by this horrible skin disease. We're pretty sure now that it was shingles. He had a, a rash that extended down his face and onto his chest. He was in horrible pain. Um, and Nimitz said, look, you've got to go to the hospital. You can't possibly continue on active duty under those circumstances. Now, who do you want to replace you in this coming fight? Let me make the point, by the way, that Nimitz did not say, gosh, I guess we'll have to call this off because you're not available. <laughs> he said, we're going ahead. Now, who should take your spot? And the man that Halsey recommended immediately, without any hesitation, probably expecting the query, was Raymond Spruance. Raymond Spruance had been the commander of the cruiser destroyer screen that surrounded the carriers and protected the carriers when they made their uh, Doolittle raid. So Spruance knew the command, but of course he's what was called a black shoe. He's a ship driver. He's a battleship cruiser man. He didn't wear gold wings of an aviator. He didn't know that much about carrier operations. Nevertheless, he's the guy that replaces Halsey in command of that two-carrier task force, which Nimitz then sends north of Midway. May I ask you a question, please, before we move on to the next person? Does Admiral Spruance deserve a fifth star? Um, this is a controversy that still rages. It's a fair question. Um, when Congress authorized the creation of the uh, fleet admiral's rank with five stars, it was clear who three of them would be. And there could only be four. One of them would be Leahy, who was President Roosevelt's chief of staff and the senior man in the Navy. One would be King who was both Comanche and CNO, one would be Nimitz. But who would get the fourth five-star rank? And that remained empty for a full year before it was finally given to Halsey. Now, in my personal opinion, it should have gone to Spruance. I think Nimitz felt exactly the same way. But the guy who had the last word on the question was the chairman of the House Naval Affairs Committee, Carl Vinson, who believed that um, Halsey's role in boosting morale, particularly in 1942 in the darkest days, by conducting those raids into the Marshalls and the Carolines and commanding the South Pacific Theater, that that role should be acknowledged. And it was because of Carl Vinson, I believe, that Halsey got the fifth star. But the short answer to your question, too late for that, the <laughs> short answer to your question is yes, Spruance should have had the fifth star. One of the things that comes through your book is is how Admiral Nimitz dealt with a man you mentioned a little while ago, and that's Ernest King, who became Chief of Naval Operations early in the war. King was famously irascible, a bit of a womanizer and a rake, 
used to getting his own way and fought like hell to get his way. But Nimitz seemed to have managed that relationship very well. Did Nimitz feel like he owed King anything in terms of his career? And how was he able to be Bradley to Patton as he was Nimitz to King? That, that's a good analogy. Very interesting. First of all, I will I will say irascible is an extremely kind word to apply <laughs> to Admiral King. He was, in his own words, a son of a bitch to work for and to work with. He was tough as nails and proud of it. I will, however, dispute with you the womanizer business. He got that reputation probably undeservedly. He was ruggedly handsome. Women liked him. Uh, and he was known to be uh, somewhat of a drinker before the war. But he was a teetotaler during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there's no hard evidence that I was able to find of, of womanizing. Um, Captain Browning, who was actually Halsey's air boss, uh, and and Spruance's air boss at Midway uh, was a bit of a womanizer, but I'm not sure King deserved that label. But let me answer your question. Um, I don't think he owed King his position or believed that he owed King any particular uh, obedience other than the fact that King was his boss. And in the Navy, which is a hierarchical structure, when your boss gives you an order, you can say, aye, aye, sir. You can say, sir, may I discuss that with you first. Um, But you can't say no. Uh, So Nimitz is in a position to deal with King when King says, we got to do this. And Nimitz says, well, may I offer an alternate point of view? And as you suggest, he's very good at it. And going all the way back to where this conversation began with temperament, the ability to disagree without being confrontational, to apply more information and allow your boss to see and understand the circumstances perhaps more clearly, that requires a pretty deft touch. And Nimitz had that. You think that Admiral Nimitz enjoyed, looked forward to, or valued his frequent conferences? Maybe frequent's not the right word, but but several conferences he had in San Francisco or other places with Admiral King? It was part of his job. He had, There were 16 of them, by the way, 16 times during the war when they met face-to-face, most of them in San Francisco. King actually came out to Hawaii once. Uh, Nimitz went to Washington twice, but usually they met in between in San Francisco. And uh, the, the notes are, are very cryptic. It's hard to figure out exactly who said what to who. But it seems like they began with King saying, look, this is the way things are. And Nimitz, um, in, in, you know, interjecting uh, periodically to say, on the other hand. Uh, so I think for Nimitz, it was uh, not quite a trial by fire, but I don't think it was a love fest either. Uh, it was something he had to do. You mentioned, we mentioned Admiral Halsey a few minutes ago. He's one of the top legends, I would say, Navy legends of all time, especially uh, during World War II. How did Nimitz and Halsey get along? How did they see the war and what needed to be done? Yeah, uh, Nimitz really appreciated Halsey for the things he could do. When it was, uh, you know, a, a cavalry charge, let's go get them, shoot them up, uh, go get those bad guys. 
uh, Halsey was the man you wanted. Uh, you want a guy like Halsey in the Pacific or like Patton in Europe, who's the tough guy who's going to take the bit in his teeth and just go get him. That's useful. But he also had Halsey's number. He knew that when it was a nuanced uh, circumstance or a very complex amphibious operation, Halsey was probably not the guy you wanted for that job. That would be Spruance. That's when he put Spruance in charge. The landings on uh, on Saipan in particular, or Iwo Jima, when they're complex and difficult, put Spruance in charge. Uh, so he liked and appreciated Halsey, but he also knew what his limits were. It's always an interesting experience to read about, even in a ancillary role in a book such as yours, to read about Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> How did Admiral Nimitz and General MacArthur coordinate, coexist, interact? In theory, of course, they are on the same level. They're on the same plane. One each commands a theater. The Southwest Pacific Theater was Douglas MacArthur. He was the supreme allied commander, but only in his theater. In the Pacific Ocean area, five times larger, Nimitz was the supreme allied commander. That means Nimitz didn't command just the fleet. He commanded the Army, the Army Air Force, the fleet, Dutch, British, every other Allied force in the entire Pacific Ocean area was under Nimitz's command. But as far as MacArthur was concerned, I mean, MacArthur had been a general when Nimitz was a commander. So as far as MacArthur was concerned, who does this jumped up puppy think he is? He did not conceive of the relationship as being co-equals. So Nimitz knew he had to be careful. He always called uh, MacArthur general and sir. He was always deferential when they met, which wasn't very often because MacArthur refused to leave his headquarters. So when they did meet, Nimitz had to go to him. And then it was further complicated by the fact that Nimitz had a chief of staff named Sutherland who was kind of a jerk and who treated uh, Nimitz as if he was an errand boy. And Nimitz wouldn't take it from Sutherland. He'd take it from MacArthur, but he wouldn't take it from Sutherland. Sutherland so was MacArthur's. Sutherland was MacArthur's chief of staff. Is, uh, did I say Nimitz? I apologize. That's okay. That's okay. MacArthur's chief of staff. Exactly. So we and should Army note that so like Robert Vane. <laughs> we should note that uh, Sutherland ended up hating Douglas MacArthur as his memoirs uh, dictate, uh, but but they work together, and. So much of your book, it's not, your book isn't a psychological profile of Admiral Nimitz, I wouldn't say, but in a lot of ways, it's a personality profile of him and how he deals with crises with people. Uh, we talked a little bit about what kind of, what his strengths are. What were, what were his weaknesses? If he had any. Well, Admiral King thought he did. King thought, in fact, King was dubious about Nimitz when he first took command, wasn't sure he was the guy he wanted on the spot, because in King's view, uh, Nimitz was not a son of a bitch. 
that he would, for example, put up with a subordinate commander who was not quite cutting the mustard, but who was a nice enough fellow and trying his best. He didn't think Nimitz was tough enough to fire those guys and replace them with somebody else. Now, of course, Nimitz did do that by essentially relieving Robert Gormley during the Guadalcanal operation and replacing him with uh, William Halsey, Bull Halsey. Uh, so he could do that at need. But I think uh, King was right in looking upon Nimitz as someone who would prefer to find a way to take someone who had not quite lived up to what he needed to do and find him a different job rather than just throw him under the bus. And the best example of this, I think, is his management of Mark Mitcher, who at the Battle of Midway clearly violated both the spirit and the letter of his orders because he believed he knew better than Nimitz where the threat was likely to come from and sent his air group off in the wrong direction and then unforgivably lied about it in his after-action report. Once this became clear, when Spruance uh, revealed that information to Nimitz, Nimitz could not leave him in command of a task group, but he didn't, again, cashier him or court-martial him. He gave him the command of the uh, PBY squadron at Kaneohe on the north shore of Oahu and kind of kept an eye on him for a year and then eased him back into command in 19, late 43 and early 44 and Mitcher became what his biographer called the magnificent Mitcher, the leader of American <laughs> carrier force in the Pacific. So he 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 moved him out of that position, kept an eye on him, talked to him, and moved him back into it again. The King probably would have sent him to Fort Leavenworth. <laughs> Is part of Nimitz's personality in in way you just described it? In other words okay, you screwed up, but that doesn't mean that you're not excellent at what you do. How much of that mentality goes back to the fact that Nimitz once screwed up when he was commanding a ship years and years before World War, I think it was years and years before World War II. Oh, gosh, yes. It was soon after he got his commission from the Naval Academy. He was an ensign still in the Philippine Islands and in command of an old scow of a, of a destroyer. It's called a destroyer in the records, but it was really a, a derelict vessel and bringing it back back in and ran aground on an uncharted sandbar. Could happen to anybody, right? But remember what I said earlier about responsibility in the Navy. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're at fault, you're responsible. Uh, and he could have let it go. A, a, another boat was coming by, he got towed off, he went back, there was no damage. Who was to know? But he reported himself, uh, went before a court of inquiry, got a letter of reprimand. Uh, but again, he survived and became uh, he became Admiral Nimitz. And remembering that, perhaps, is one reason why Nimitz was inclined to give good officers a second chance. How important for the winning of the war in the Pacific and, and Admiral Nimitz's own sense of confidence or, or, or sense that, hey, we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning. How pivotal is the year 1943? The specific reason I ask is because as it comes through in your book, the material that's starting to roll off the American assembly lines is so incredibly impressive. Essex fast 
uh, carriers and this and that. So that's 1943. In your in your mind, how important is that year? Well, it's incredibly important, and not important for the reasons you cite. In June June first, 1943, the USS Essex, the namesake and the first of a whole class of aircraft carriers, large deck aircraft carriers, shows up in Pearl Harbor. Others will come. The Yorktown, the New Yorktown, the first one, of course. Uh, sunk at Midway, the CV-5. This is now CV-10, and there will be 11, 12, 13. They will begin to multiply. At that point, Japan had lost the war. The difficulty is that the culture of the Japanese warrior ethos was that surrender is inconceivable. There's The word surrender does not even exist in Japanese. And so the idea of surrender was beyond them. They would fight to the very end. Uh, So the difficulty of both the advantage of having all those resources now available and conducting really two offensive operations, one by MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific, one conducted by Nimitz in the Central Pacific, both vectoring on the Japanese home islands, and not to be underestimated, the incredible impact of American submarines on Japanese trade. American submarines did to Japan what German U-boats were unable to do to Britain, and that is cut off their line to supply so that there was a very real possibility that the entire population of Japan would starve to death. I mean, that's how onerous these circumstances were. All that began to become apparent in 1943, but it didn't mean the war would end because of the problem of convincing the Japanese that they could not win. We were talking earlier in the podcast about the American attitude towards the Japanese. I mean, it was just pure hatred of which the Japanese certainly earned. And the Japanese were hated in Korea, Manchuria, China, Philippines, the list goes on and on. I just finished about a month ago. I think it's John McManus, his book. His, oh, John's a great guy. Yeah. He's a terrific podcast guest. I haven't posted it yet, but we guy interviewed him. It was a wonderful, wonderful book. One of the things that came through in it was this fanatical hatred on both sides. The fact that the Japanese wouldn't surrender. It doesn't seem in the reading of your book on Admiral Nimitz that Nimitz and please push back that Nimitz rose to that level of hatred, race hatred. He was angry. He wanted to win. He knew to win. He had to kill people, but his, his attitude certainly, and I won't use the quotation certainly seems to have been different than Admiral Halsey's, for example. Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, one of the reasons Halsey was so popular back home was he would say the things that you just declined to say. And I will because he was asked by the newspaper reporters, what's your strategy? And he says, my strategy is to kill Japs, kill Japs, then kill more Japs. And by the time I'm finished, the Japanese language will be spoken only in hell. Well, see, that's the kind of stuff that makes newspaper headlines back in the States and, and in fact, kept morale up at the front. And then one of the reasons why the sailors and the men loved Bull Halsey But you're right. Nimitz never did buy into that. And in fact, he told 
Halsey said, look, you are not helping things with these comments. When you say that you are going to ride the emperor's white horse through the streets of Tokyo, that does not help. That's not going to help us convince the Japanese that they need to come to the surrender table. Uh, so knock it off. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe Halsey hasn't had a movie like Patton made about him. That's surprising to me because of all the quotes. The last years of the war, as we finish up here on the Leaders and Legend podcast with famous and award-winning historian, excuse me, Craig Simons, Nimitz at War is his book we're discussing. The last few years of the war, it was it's kind of like the union effort after Lincoln's re-election. We all know how it's going to end. It didn't make it any easier. They were the fights on the islands, Okinawa, Iwo Jima. My great uncle uh, drove uh, an LST in uh, the Nimitz Navy, eight major landings, including Okinawa. Hmm. I asked him after I had gone to the army, you know, served in the army, was a little bit older and had seen movies. You know, we didn't really talk about it much when I was a kid, but I, I, he's he was a wonderful, wonderful man, George Murray. And I said, what do these movies get right? And he said, they get a lot right. He goes, but there's one thing they'll never be able to get right. They'll never capture one aspect of combat and what I saw. And I was like, well, look at that. And I kind of smiled. I go, okay, what's that? His answer was the smell. Yeah. One of the things Nimitz always did with one exception, and I'll mention that in a minute, but in every case, he went to every island where the Marines had landed and walked the battlefield. He talked to the men to assess their morale, to, to see for himself what it felt like and what it looked like. And when he was walking around, I believe it was on Tarawa, although it may have been on Saipan, but I'm going to say Tarawa, uh, he was walking along and he turned to his communications officer who was walking next to him and said, this is the first time I've ever smelled death. So the smell, I think, was something they all dealt with. Uh, in all of these operations. The one exception, the island he did not visit was Peleliu. And I think it's because he knew that he probably should have called that one off uh, rather than letting it go ahead. And if we had more time, I'd explain why he made that decision. But please, I, no, I no, think no, smell no, 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 professor, please do so. Please explain because you're going to, you just anticipated my next question. Well, Peleliu was one of the islands of the Palau group. It had an airfield. It was heavily occupied by the Japanese, and it was on the flank, the right flank of MacArthur's planned invasion of Mindanao, which was shifted subsequently to Leyte. And MacArthur, at one of their meetings, had extracted from Nimitz a promise that he would protect his flank. So when the news came that uh, they were shifting it from Mindanao to Leyte, that the entire timetable was being adjusted, and that probably Peleliu would not be as critical to this coming operation as MacArthur had originally thought, there was some consideration giving to calling that off. But the invasion force was already at sea. The UDT SEALs had already landed on the beach and prepared the landing zones. Calling it off would probably create as much confusion as going ahead. And Nimitz, I think, was concerned that MacArthur would object to having extracted a promise from him that he would protect his flank that Nimitz pulled back on it. So Nimitz let that operation go ahead. It was unnecessary because although there was an airstrip on Pelican, 
Peleliu, there were almost no airplanes. And the Japanese there were dug deep into limestone caves so that getting them out of those caves one by one proved to be a horrifying experience and extraordinarily costly. And perhaps because of that, Nimitz did not visit Peleliu after the battle. Iwo Jima and Okinawa are usually cited, among other bullet points or pieces of evidence, to to justify the use of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, there obviously aren't the only reasons, but what did Nimitz think of those battles? I know I'm going to ask you to say his famous quote about the Marines or about Iwo Jima, uh, but what did he what did he think of those battles? And did it change his opinion or how did it inform his opinion on how absolutely horrifying an invasion of the Japanese mainland would be? Well, broadest question first, and that is there's a discussion among within the Joint Chiefs and less so among the combined chiefs uh, about the use of the atomic bomb. Nimitz's preference, King's preference was to blockade the island the uh, home islands, the Japanese home islands, bomb from the air, cut off all food and fuel supplies to the home islands and wait for the Japanese to appreciate their helplessness and surrender. The problem with that as a strategic plan is that it's conceivable the Japanese would never, never have said, oh, you're right, this is too hard, we quit. That was simply not in their culture. So it is not impossible that they simply would have allowed their entire population to expire. Members of the Japanese uh, 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 army staff actually said, talked about the glorious death of 100 million, uh, that this would be a wonderful thing if this were to happen. Um, the alternative, of course, was invasion. And Nimitz was against an invasion. He didn't want to do it. He thought it would be too costly. He thought it was unnecessary. Uh, but MacArthur, who had already been designated as the commander of an invasion, should one take place, expected it to happen, planned for it to happen. He and Nimitz did clash. This is as close as they ever came to having an open confrontation, did clash about conducting that invasion. But all of it was rendered moot by the atomic bombs. And that's why I personally, this is an editorial comment, believe the bombs were necessary because they cut through that cultural view that we must fight until we're all dead. This was something else. This was a kind of uh, extraterrestrial intervention that allowed the Japanese, and in particular the Japanese emperor, to say, no, I must save the lives of my people and endure the unendurable. We must surrender. And they did. And at the time these arguments are happening, it's interesting that Douglas MacArthur outranks Chester Nimitz by one day. Yes, when the five-star ranks were distributed, they had to determine what seniority they would have. MacArthur outranked uh, Nimitz by one day. Nimitz outranked Eisenhower by one day. Yeah. That was just the way they set it up. At the end of the war, uh, there's a great photo of of Nimitz, and and in, in uh, Professor McManus's book on the U.S. Army in the Philippines, uh, is a wonderful section about 
the reunion between uh, MacArthur and Jonathan Wainwright, mm. who had been taken prisoner at Corregidor. Uh, there's a wonderful set of wonderful pictures where where Chester Nimitz is signing the surrender document on behalf of the United States. MacArthur signed it on behalf of the entire Allied coalition. Uh, do you have any insights into what Admiral Nimitz was thinking as he walked aboard the USS Missouri and as he sat there and signed his name and, you know, thought, wow, man, it's, it's been just under four years and I can't believe it's all, you know, I can't believe how I've lived my last four years. Now, what do we do? I mean, what do you think the emotions are running through his mind? I always kind of think in some way, and maybe this is wrong, but I almost wonder if he had some of the same thoughts of, as Grant. When Grant was at Appomattox, like, okay. Yeah, that's a great question. I I have, there's only one little hint. I, the whole question of temperament, part of that is withholding, playing your cards very close to the vest about what you're thinking about the people around you, and particularly Douglas MacArthur. But there's one tiny hint about this that comes from a young ensign who was the son of friends that Nimitz knew on the island of Oahu, the Walker family, whom he used to visit occasionally for social events. And he knew that the, their boy, who was a staff officer on, uh, on the New Jersey, on Halsey's flagship. And uh, he arranged uh, this young ensign to be present when MacArthur and Nimitz walked into the wardroom on board the Missouri just an hour before the surrender. And of course, being an ensign, he stayed in the corner and, and was very low key. Nimitz didn't even see him standing there. But Halsey and uh, Nimitz were standing together when MacArthur strode into the room. Now, MacArthur had insisted that they wear open collar khaki uniforms, not the full dress uniforms that all the foreign representatives and certainly the Japanese all wore full dress. But MacArthur's argument was and it goes along with him wearing his old battered Philippine <laughs> field marshal's hat uh, whenever he had a picture taken. Look at me, I'm a rugged warrior. That's it. We're going to wear open collar shirts. Nimitz said nothing about that. But then after, the, uh, so MacArthur walks in and he grabs hold of Nimitz's hand and he shakes it. And then he reaches over and grabs Halsey's hand and puts it on top so that they're all four holding hands. And MacArthur says, this is the moment we have striven for low these many years. And they all just kind of stood there for a, for a minute. I'm turn off this phone. Um, they stood there for a minute looking at one another, being watched unknown to them by this young ensign. So then they leave to go out onto the deck. And as they leave, Nimitz sees this kid, this 22-year-old ensign, and says, uh, you know, wow, I didn't know you were here. And he looks down at me and says, where are your collar bars? He forgot to put on his ensign, but gold ensign bars. And he says, we may have to do this in our working uniforms, but by golly, we will wear our emblems of rank. So that implied to me <laughs> that Nimitz said, yes, sir, General MacArthur, I'll wear whatever uniform you tell me to wear, and I won't complain about it. But I might mention it to this young ensign over here. <laughs> so that's the only hint we get that Nimitz was um, playing the role that MacArthur had assigned to him. But what he thought about the end of the war, we can only guess at. I I'm sure he was relieved pleased. He wrote home to his wife, Catherine, about what a relief it was that the killing had ended. Uh, but that's about the only hint we have. 
take a few minutes here. We have just a few minutes uh, left for this podcast and tell the Leaders and Legends audience about Chester Nimitz's post-war life and career. Like every uh, successful and aspiring senior officer, uh, Nimitz looked forward to the possibility of being named Chief of Naval Operations. That's the top of the pyramid. That's the highest job in the United States Navy and kind of anticipated that once the war was over, he would become Chief of Naval Operations. And certainly King, despite his early uncertainties about how tough Nimitz was, King was all four square for it. But the guy who was skeptical about that was the new Secretary of the Navy, James V. Forrestal, who didn't want him. And he didn't want him because he listened to John Towers, the aviator, senior aviator in the Navy, who thought it should not go to a battleship driver like Nimitz, somebody who wasn't an aviator. Um, but King fought for him, and so did others. Uh, there was a guy named Ed Pauley, who was the actual the fundraiser for Truman's re-election campaign, who was a strong friend of Nimitz's from their days at Berkeley. And uh, he, he pitched for, and finally a deal was struck. You could be chief of naval operations, but only for two years instead of four. Nimitz said, good enough for me. So he did two years as chief of naval operations, eased the transition into the Department of Defense organization that emerged after the war was over, and then retired. Uh, he worked for the United Nations for a couple of years, but he lived out the last days of his life in, in uh, the Bay Area in California, first in Berkeley and then on Yerba Buena Island, and died at uh, just a couple of days short of his 80th birthday. What do you think Admiral Nimitz would think of the USS Nimitz? <laughs> He'd be honored, of course, um, and probably a little taken aback by the enormous size of that city afloat and the technology that made it possible. You know, Nimitz was not a technology guy, but he was quick to recognize the technologies that would make a difference. It was Nimitz who, after the widespread use of radar on warships in 1942 and into 1943, conceived of the idea of a combat information center. That is one location in the ship where all of the inputs from the radars and the other sensors would be um, uh, collated so that they could be sent up to the bridge for the commanding officer to make a, a decision. Uh, it, he could see immediately that these technological innovations and how they could be employed to be effective in a naval environment. So I think he would have walked around looking at all the various aspects on the USS Nimitz and begun thinking in his mind, now I can see how this would work. Is Chester Nimitz, and one is one of the objectives of your book, is he underrated? Um, not at the Naval Academy. I mean, my 30 years teaching at the Naval Academy, I walked by his statue nearly every day on my way into Nimitz Library, past the Nimitz statue. So I think it's understood in, in the circles where it matters that his example of leadership is one that we need to emulate. It's interesting to me that a number of people who teach at business schools have used this book to show CEOs how they can best uh, be efficient in the management of their companies. So it's a 
skill and an outlook uh, that is applicable, not only in a military environment, but in any leadership environment. And, and I think that's beginning to be understood more than it was. I think you're right in that the couple of decades immediately after the war, the Pattons and the Halseys of the world got more ink than, say, uh, the Nimitzes and the Eisenhowers. But those are the guys, in my opinion, who won the war. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Today, our guest has been Craig Simons. We have discussed his book, Nimitz at War. I've read it. It's wonderful, just like the other six books I think I've read from the professor. Maybe we'll have him on again, and I want to beat up on uh, Joseph E. Johnston a little bit. So <laughs> may maybe Craig will come back on. Thank you so much for your time. You're a, a terrific writer, a wonderful historian. I'm very grateful. And, and all I can ask on behalf of all of us is please keep writing. I will. And Robert, if you don't mind, I'll take just a moment to say just this week, I learned to my enormous satisfaction that I've been named the 2023 winner of the Pritzker Prize on Military Ooh. Literature, which I will go to Chicago and accept next month. So I'm I'm very chuffed about that. Well, we'll make sure that we post this podcast in time. And I can't think of anyone more deserving. You have been incredibly gracious with your time and your intellect and your talent and all of us who love books and love history we're all enriched because of it i just wish you know we need to get you writing more about the united states army no comment <laughs> <laughs> congratulations on your honor thank you robert thank you very much for listening to leaders and legends brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated if you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. 